turfs and trannies. My name is Corinna, and you are listening to Heterodorks with our co-host. I'm Nina Paley, and we are thrilled to have today Stefan Kinsella, who wrote a classic book against intellectual property. I am hoping that Stefan can help set Corinna straight about copyright. Before I met Nina, I thought copyright should be eternal. As soon as anybody drafts a single idea and puts it on a piece of paper or makes a recording of it, that they have created a new material element of the universe, which should continually have rights ascribed to it. And then after I met Nina, I thought, well, I'm going to tone that down a little bit. And I think a copyright should be the life of the creator plus 100 years. And every time I talk to Nina, it goes down a little bit more. So we're going to see today if that number goes all the way down to zero and I give up my deeply held beliefs in copyright. And I, sh- I should add that Corinna is a libert- Corinna identifies as a libertarian. I know. So we should have better luck with her than even with you. You're, you're like a miracle to be right on this issue. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't persuaded by libertarians. I came to it by myself. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I heard your previous discussions, and Corinna, you seemed like you were kind of zooming in the right direction a little bit there. Um, to really explain it, you really have to get at least a little bit into some kind of basics of uh, property theory and lock, or at least the way I explain it. And then there's the consequential or utilitarian side too, which we can, we can approach it from that direction too, which is most people's uh, approach. So I have listened to the audio version of your book, which it was narrated by a nice English-sounding man, so that was fun. Jock Coates. And I also watched a debate that you had with somebody who had proclaimed himself to be a, having developed a, a libertarian concept of copyright, and that was a somewhat contentious debate. I don't know if you uh, know who I'm talking about. And I, I don't think I've ever had a decent debate because it's either a train wreck, which is kind of fun. Uh, but it, you get nowhere, or it's um, the other side is just not prepared and they don't have a co- coherent argument. I, I've, I've yet to have a coherent debate with anyone. I listened in. I listened to part of this video that Corinna is talking about. I don't remember the names either, but it seemed pretty incoherent to me. Yeah, yeah. They switch. Ba- they switch back and forth between sort of empirical or consequential arguments, and then they'll switch to kind of natural rights type arguments. So they're never clear on what they're arguing. And they'll if you if you corner them on one thing. And one thing I've noticed is when you argue with someone who doesn't have a, a solid understanding of IP law, which is complicated, um, and then they try to argue for it. And you corner them on some horrible examples or obvious abuses, they always back off on that and they'll say, well, I'm not in favor of that. So you start shipping away and you say, well, what the hell are you in favor of? And then they'll say, well, I'm not an expert. I don't know. It's like, well, then what, are we, what are we debating? You know, before we even get into this, I want to say how like a religion copyright is and how similar these arguments are to the arguments people have about identity, particularly gender identity. They, they get super emotional and break down the same way and you just yeah can, can we take a little break i'm, I'm already starting to feel threatened <laughs> you're valid corinna you're va- your stupid views on copyright are valid well from like from a libertarian point of view we it's a similar phenomenon to like when we you know we say we don't believe in government roads and government health care and the average person especially outside the u.s is used to the government doing all that so they can't even envision a society without that. So to them, it's like attacking you know, Christ or the church or something sacred to them because they just can't even envision a world that where the government doesn't provide health care 
they're so used to it. And the same thing is true with IP. We're so used to patent and copyright and related ideas permeating society. Um, and the more you notice it, it's almost like in the sixth sense when the guy says, I see dead people all the time. I see IP everywhere. It like permeates so many things, the identity thing, identity theft, lots of laws. You know, Even like the CIA has these laws that say it's, it's a crime to, to copy their logo. Now, they don't call it a trademark or a copyright, but it's, it's the same logic, right? Why don't they call it trademark? Why wouldn't trademark protect the CIA's? Logo? They just have a special because it's, they want criminal they want criminal penalties, so they have a special statute for use of that particular mark. It's a national security thing or something. Huh. Well, just for the record, I support government roads and I support uh, single payer state sponsored healthcare. However, I do not support a copyright style system for any of these, and roads are something that we often talk about when we're talking about copyright and how silly copyright is because if you want a road uh, you pay someone to build the road correct you just pay them up front you build the road and then you have the road and everybody can use the road and the copyright model is uh, you know you you're inspired to make a road and then you get to demand uh, you get to keep everybody off that road Unless they ask your permission or pay you a royalty every single time, which really doesn't work for roads. Right. So if I'm an artist and I want to be paid for my work, and part of that is that I count on as part of my income stream royalties, can I do that without copyright? I think uh, you can, but it's it's probably more difficult without copyright. Um, you absolutely can. Yeah, but... But you maybe you won't get as much or whatever. But like, yeah, you could you could publish it with someone, and you could make them, you could make them agree to pay you a percentage of their sales. It's just that they might be undercut later by competitors who copied the book. But but you have to realize. So questions are you know they're fine. And you can talk about how we would imagine a copyright free world, but you have to go into it realizing that a question. See, sometimes the questions are put in a loaded way or in a, or in a, a, a question begging way, like. They basically are demanding that you satisfy this. So it's like if, if the libertarian says we're, we're against welfare and they say, well, what would take care of the poor? We say, well, probably private charity. And they say, can you can you guarantee that? And unless you guarantee it, they say, well, I'll stick with my government guarantee, even though that's not a guarantee either because the system is going bankrupt, right? But it's it's like if I if we had slavery like in 1839 or something and I was arguing that slavery is immoral and should be abolished and someone listens to me and they say, well, I hear your arguments. But who would pick the cotton? Now, either that question is serious or it's disingenuous. Like they're just they're just curious who would pick the cotton. And my answer might be, I don't know. Maybe the cotton wouldn't be picked, or maybe machines, or maybe you'd have to hire people. But if but usually the question would, would be more of a rhetorical question, like, well, we can't abolish slavery because no one would pick the cotton and we need cotton to be picked, and that's our primary goal in society is to have cotton be picked. Right, and so the same thing is true with copyright. When, when, when people say, "Well, how am I going to get paid for my work?" They're basically sometimes saying that you need to prove to me that your new scheme will 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 make it possible for me to earn a living doing what I want to do. Otherwise, I'm in favor of this law. But to me, the question is: Is the law just? Right? It's it's interesting to to imagine what would happen without it. I think everyone, even including artists, would by and large be better off. Most artists don't make a lot of money off the copyright system that exists now. Piracy is possible now even though 
there's copyright, just like the drug war. Drugs drugs exist even though there's a drug war, right? So there's millions of pirated sources available right now, even though there is copyright. So anyone trying to make money off of their artistic creations has to, and they rely on copyright, they still have to face competition in the form of piracy. Basically, it's an entrepreneurial question, not a, not a political or a moral one. Uh, the question is, how do you make a profit in a world where the type of endeavor you want to engage in, you face competition very easily? Like it's not as easy for people to compete with you in the brick and mortar world. It takes a while for them to build a similar building or you know, build a customer base. But in some types of fields of endeavor, if you're just selling a movie or selling a book, those happen to be easy to copy, which means it's easy for someone to compete with you. So you're facing competition that will rush in more quickly than in other fields. But it's still up to the entrepreneur to figure out a business model that works. I'm trying to fit this into my, my current model. One of the things I'm thinking of is that if I go onto the app store, there are thousands and thousands of free applications. But I find that nevertheless, I'm often paying for the applications because first of all, the price serves oftentimes as a signal of quality. Also, that price often goes towards supporting the creators to continually improve the product. The fact that I can get something for free does not stop me from spending my own money to get something that I think might be better. Well, yeah, and I think Cory Doctorow, who's uh, kind of a left-leaning civil libertarian type, he's a sci-fi writer, but he's for a copyright reform too. He's actually not for abolition. A lot of these guys don't have enough principles to go all the way. He had some comment that you know the, the greatest danger facing most new artists is obscurity, not not piracy. Um, you want to get noticed. Um, you know, a lot of these. Small musicians hand out their CDs for free at their concerts. They want people to copy them. And then when they get big, they want to make a lot of money. I think the golden age of people making tens of or hundreds of millions of dollars from CD sales is was a was a temporary blip. You know, after the LP age and before the streaming age, you know, about a 30-year period. I think that's gone. Now now they get royalties from streaming and from, from touring and merchandise sales and fans and sometimes Patreon, that kind of thing. But um, if you want to think about it, there's – like I would say most types of artistic creation are not compensated now even though there's a copyright system. So for example, we're doing this podcast. We're not, I'm not getting paid. People write on blogs. They do comments. They write blogs. They do podcasts. They don't get paid for that. People write scholarly articles. They don't generally get paid for that. Nonfiction books don't pay that well generally, right? The most lucrative things would be popular novels, right, and movies. And so let's just think about those in a copyright-free world. Imagine like – well, movies, number one. Movies used to be made for a profit by selling ticket sales at the door, right? And that was their only source of income uh, like in the 50s, 60s. When technology changed and, and then they started selling them to cable TV, right, HBO, or tele network television later on. That was like a secondary stream. And then on airplanes, right, in hotel rooms. And then they started renting the VHS tapes out and then DVDs, and now they stream them. So they have all these secondary and tertiary levels of income streams that are on top of the base model, which is just selling tickets for a movie theater. So even if copyright eroded most of those, you would still have the ability to build a theater, play a movie, and sell tickets, and you could make money. And remember, most of the money's made in a month or so. So even if people started pirating it with a low-quality version, 
it would take a while for them to get the copies and to set up their studios. So you could still make money by making a movie and selling tickets, if nothing else, right? So movies could make money. If you're a novelist, like, so imagine the Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling case of Harry Potter. So she was some kind of welfare type mom riding the subway, working menial jobs and writing this story, their passion project on the train. I think that's roughly the story. She sold it. She finally found a publisher, and it was a, a hit, right? Now imagine she was a no-name, and she had done Harry Potter in her spare time, and she just self-published it on CreateSpace on Amazon, sold it for two ninety-nine a copy or something like that, and she acquired soon tens of millions of fans, right? So now she's got tens of millions of fans, and maybe her revenue drops off right away because piracy kicks in. Okay, maybe. Well, then she thinks, oh, I've got six other novels in my head. So she writes novel number two, and she does a, a GoFundMe or an Indiegogo thing, and she says, as soon as I get a million of my fans to give me $5, I'll release this book. So she has $5 million. Okay, That's not chump change. So that's fine. Then you can see how she could pyramid that for the next six and make – you know, we're getting $50 million, $100 million range, right? And then merchandise and all this and speaking tours and all this. And then let's say there's a movie company that wants to make a movie. Well, there could be three or four going on at the same time because they don't need her permission because there's no derivative works protection. There's no copyright. So you could have unauthorized movies made of it, and they could make money. But one of them might say, listen, if we get J.K. Rowling's feedback and endorsement on this movie, her fans will think of this as the authentic version and we'll draw more of them to go see the movie in the theaters, and we'll make more money. So we'll hire her as a consultant to endorse the film and pay her, you know, five percent of the of the box office. So now the maybe make the movie makes half a million half a billion dollars, and she she gets another hundred. You know, so it's easy to imagine that if you put a little creative effort into it, and you don't you're not lazy and just rest upon the royalties coming in because the police state <laughs> punishes competitors, you could find ways to make money. With things that are lucrative, I still don't think it's going to help make poets make money, but they don't make money now. Yeah, most people don't. Most artists don't make money in the copyright regime. And I, I just want to say that I didn't start questioning copyright because I comprehended it was immoral. That that came later. Uh, I questioned it because it just was dysfunctional. It, it restricted your artistic uh, freedom, right, to choose the songs you wanted. Right. I mean, it, it was harming me as an artist and people kept telling me it was protecting me as an artist. And I was I and I just believed it protected me. Right. Because that's what everybody said. And uh, that was the religion. But uh, when I actually sat down and looked at it because it was harming me, then I realized it wasn't protecting me at all. It was keeping me quite like my belief in it was keeping my work obscure. Oh, I do want to say that with these with these ways that films can make money, I experienced all of that with my free release of Sita Sings the Blues. I didn't know I was going to make money. I knew that I wanted to free it, but because I was working with questioncopyright.org and Carl Fogel had ideas, we we set it up as a model of alternate ways, you know, just ways you can make money without copyright. And I made more money freeing that movie than I had ever made with my copyrighted work. So it's certainly possible. But again, like Stefan says, you know, it's not going to work for everything. People have to like it. And in the existing system, we have the same issues. Nina, on a previous episode, we had talked about not just the case of something lacking copyright, but also of plagiarism. I'm curious, if you work really hard on Cita Sings the Blues, and I take it and I put my name on it, does that harm you in any way? And if so, should you have some sort of remedy for it? 
Well, I think fraud harms me. I think, you know, if you actually did that, I think it would harm you at this point. But I think if somebody's unknown and obscure and someone swoops in and does that, they have more of an issue. And when I was asked that question early on, I realized that freeing my work protected me more than hoarding it. Because when I free it, I put it out there. There's a record online, you know, a a timestamp, if you will. And that was protecting me from plagiarism. When you argue against copyright and patent, so you'll get called a commie, and I'm a libertarian, so (laughs) pro-capitalist. My shirt was not on the thing. Capitalism, enjoy capitalism, you know. And you get you get accused of favoring fraud and plagiarism. These these arguments are either they're either insincere because it's just not true, or they're or they're based in ignorance because this is a confused feel. So plagiarism has literally nothing to do with copyright. Copyright doesn't stop plagiarism. So you could you could you could reprint the Bible tomorrow and put your name on it if you wanted to, but you'd look like an idiot because everyone knows you're not the author, right? The big problem that copyright seeks to stop is when you don't plagiarize, like when you copy the entire thing, including the author's name. You know, if I want to sell a Harry Potter book, I don't want to put my name on it. No one's going to buy it. I want to put J.K. Rowling's name on it and sell it. So it's they're really different things. Um, plagiarism is not – and it's not always fraud. And fraud – by the way, there is fraud law already. So if, if you're really worried about fraud, then just rely on fraud and contract law. But I don't think it's generally fraud to sell something that the buyer knows or ought to know is not genuine. Like if you buy a $20 Rolex – most people know that it's not a real Rolex, so they're not being defrauded. Although trademark law outlaws that, which it should not because everyone says trademark law prevents fraud or consumer deception. But it, it applies even when the consumer is not deceived. It basically protects the reputational rights of the owner of the trademark, just like defamation law does. The arguments given for copyright are – they'll just throw these things at you. Oh, we have to stop plagiarism. Well, universities do that already with the contract with their students, right? Amazon wouldn't probably wouldn't publish a book if they were alerted that someone was lying. So it, you're just not going to get anyone reputable to do that, and it's just not really a big problem because as Nina says, usually there's a public record because you publish something. That's what it means to publish something. It's been made public, and the fact of who did it is usually easy to, to discern. The only case would be if you have an unpublished manuscript in your in your desk drawer. And by the way, this used to be covered by something called common law copyright, which has mostly been abolished by preemption by federal law. Um, but it was it was almost like a trade secret right. So if you had an unpublished manuscript in your desk drawer and someone took it, stole it, and they went to a publisher to publish it before you, you could get legal or legal remedy to stop them, which I actually don't disagree with because it's basically stopping a thief of your physical manuscript or someone who breached your trust like when there's a contract like your lawyer or your assistant or something like that. That seems like a really fine line to me. If somebody takes your manuscript, like you said, maybe it's your assistant, and they go and and publish it, I'm not clear on why that would be something that a court should get involved with if there's not such thing as copyright in the first place. Because they they took your book. They took your physical thing that you owned. So they're trespassing against your home or your or your physical paper when they took it. So So if they just sat and recorded it or sat and made a copy of it, that would be different. Copyright is applied to things that are published, to things that are made public. This is an invasion of privacy. 
That manuscript is not public. Well, you, you, you would have a copyright in it because to get a copyright under the current law, you only have to have a creative work, an original work that is fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So as soon as you print it or to type it on your computer and save it on your computer, you have a copyright in it. It's just harder to prove because you haven't made it public yet. But see, that, that system is just dumb. I mean, copyright, if there's any justification for it, it requires a registry. And copyright did require a registry. This is why you were talking about common law copyright as opposed to copyright, which historically required a registry. So this manuscript had not been published, this hypothetical manuscript had not been published. It could not have been registered yet. So this common law copyright was, I guess, what people invoked in order to protect the author from invasion of privacy. Well, so so the common law copyright was really narrow. Like we said, the the modern copyright system, uh, it was always statutory. But it was never as bad as it is now. Carl Fogel has that great talk, right, and a great uh, article on the surprising history of copyright. Yeah. Copyright. And uh, it really arose with the practice of the uh, of the church and the state controlling who could print books by controlling the scribes before the printing press. And then when the printing press threatened to let people publish things without government permission – uh, they gave a monopoly on it to the stationer's company for about 130, 40 years. And when that was about to expire, they didn't know what to do. So the publishers lobby and the authors at the time – the authors were basically subject to the to the whims of the publishers and the government approval of what could be published. And the authors wanted to free their own works, and so they lobbied for parliament to pass the Statute of Anne in 1709 which gave them a copyright, but they didn't want a copyright so they could stop people from publishing their stuff. They wanted it so they could be the ones to authorize their work to be published so that it could get out there. Um, and then that morphed into the copyright system we have with the Constitution in 1790 or so. And in that system, we call it the founder's copyright. It was about 14 years renewable once, and you had to actively renew it, and you had to actively register it. And you had to put a copyright notice on it, and it only covered maps and charts and writings. That's it. it I don't think it covered paintings even. certainly didn't cover recorded work because there was no recorded music or film. There's no photography. It didn't cover that. It didn't cover software. <laughs> None of that existed. It only covered basically books and articles and magazines and, um, and charts. It metastasized over time, and in the 80s, we finally joined the Berne Convention, which requires everyone who's a member to abolish formalities. The formalities would be the requirement to put a copyright notice on there and to register it. And also there was not statutory damages. The damages you could get were consequential, which means if someone copied your work, you had to prove that they had actually damaged you financially. And you would get you know, – I think that's still unjust, but at least it was a reasonable number, like something, something not insane. But now with statutory damages, it's up to $150,000 per infringing act. So it can be literally hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. In fact, there's a study by John Tehranian called We're All Copyright Criminals Now, which says the average American just by you know sending emails to each other, cutting and pasting things on the internet, um, making a book report for school, all these things, uh, because of the way statutory damages work, we're all liable for up to $4.5 billion of damages a year each. Multiply that times 350 million Americans and – it's more money than exists in the universe. It's crazy. but And everyone says, that's absurd. I'm like, yeah, it is absurd. <laughs> that's the problem with copyright. 
If we could go back to the founder's copyright, where, what did you say that it was? Um, 14. 14 years. Would that be, if we could go back to that point, would that be acceptable to you? If we, if we could get there, would that be enough of a change from where we are now that you would say that's, that's good enough? No, no, because because especially in this age, ideas are quick and the internet is fast. And so 14 years is still a lifetime. Plus, it would be 28. Everyone will renew it. It'd be better, but it'd be horrible still. For freedom of the press and the government censored books and they, they, they freed 90% of the books that they're censoring now, but they still censored books A, B, and C, it would, it would still be totally immoral and unacceptable. And it would harm – look, copyright – I think patents harm the world more than copyright does, but I'm on the fence about it because copyright lasts longer and it distorts culture and it restricts the freedom of, of speech and the freedom of artistic expression and, and freedom of the press. It also threatens internet freedom uh, because uh, websites are taken down all the time. There's like a million YouTube videos taken down a day by robots making threats and and YouTube responding to it because they have to under the DMCA Digital Millennium Copyright Act to maintain their immunity from third party liability so they have to do that and plus there's criminal penalties people have gone to federal prison Aaron Schwartz this young guy that helped invent RSS which we're using right now um, committed suicide because he was facing decades in federal prison he was like 20 24 27 um, because he uploaded copy or downloaded copies of some academic articles to his computer, um, violating all kinds of federal laws. Now, patents are not a criminal penalty, I think, and they only last about 17 years. But I think they they impede innovation, which impoverishes the whole human race. Who knows where we would be right now without patents slowing down technological progress? Because that that's what keeps us rich and growing richer. In the face of an ever-growing government tax and regulatory burden. So we're lucky the free market is strong enough to keep us living despite every effort the government is making to kill us. But it's only technological innovation and technology that allows us to survive and keep keep growing. So patents, I think, are actually worse. If I could only abolish one, it would probably be patents. They're the two biggest ones. The others are trade secret and trademark and defamation law and boat hole designs and semiconductor mass work protection and now these moral rights and database rights in Europe and these things like newspaper headlines you have to and, and hyperlink art rights where you have to pay a little fee if, if you have a hyperlink or a newspaper headline on your site that takes you to their newspaper, which is just stupid. So you have all these rights going out of control. There's probably fashion rights coming you know, uh, there's rights always being lobbied for by the industries that are kind of left out. You bring up something really interesting. The newspapers are complaining that Facebook and Google are stealing all of their profitability from them. And I think in Australia, there is a law that is requiring uh, Facebook and Google to even pay a fee to the newspaper companies in order to redisplay their content. Do you think that the news companies maybe have a valid complaint that without having the ability to sell advertising for their content, that they just won't be able to stay around and provide that vital service? I think the internet itself is making it harder for traditional news media to survive. They're having to um, scramble to find ways to survive. I don't think it's because of lack of copyright law. We have copyright law now. Uh, I don't think they have a complaint. I think in these cases, they're generally helped by a hyper – like Drudge Report You know, links people to their newspaper. It doesn't hurt them at all. 
it gets them notoriety and takes people there, and then they can do with them what they want. I don't think they're stealing their revenue. So the complaint you normally hear is this kind of weird complaint, which is fueled by this implicit assumption of IP, which runs through society. You'll have a, a license, the Creative Commons license, and people will often do CC, BY, NC, and D, which means attribution, which is BY. You have to say who it's by, which I don't think like Nina and I have a problem with, although I use CC0 when I can, and I think Nina uses uh, copy heart, do you call it? Well, copyright's not a license, it's just a mark. But CC0, yeah. for the Creative Commons ones, yeah. it's usually CC0. If I want to be really controlling, I'll use Sharealike. Well, and I hate Sharealike even worse than the others um, um, because it's this kind of lefty idea to try to control other people, try to make them use your license. But it's <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of annoying. Um, it's like nudge, nudge. But it's, um, very, it's very annoying, and that's why if I have these, you know, if I relapse into... The need to control share alike does it for me. I, I sympathize with it. it. There are different types of licenses you can do, and so that's SA share alike. It's Creative Commons license, but there's versions of it with software like GNU and MIT license and all these. It means that someone can use your work without your permission, as long as they put your name on it, which is the BY part, and as long as they like whatever derivative work they mix it with, and they create a new copyright that's in their name, they have to put the same license on that. And they have to bind whoever uses their work to do the same thing. So you're trying to force everyone to use your system, which is sort of trying to force them to open their stuff up, which I appreciate. I sympathize with. Um, But the NC part is – so you can use this as long as it's not for commercial work use. Now, what's weird about that is they're not saying that you're taking their profits. I mean they're not saying they're taking your profits. You're just saying, I don't want you to make a profit off of this. Like you have a problem with people. I mean if I make a million dollars off of something and someone else can use it and make their own million, that doesn't take away from me. It just means they're profiting off of it. But that bugs some people. Like, And they'll say this like you shouldn't profit off of my work. It, you really get back to the Marxian sort of labor theory of value. People own their labor and you know, like Marx thinks that the employer – the capitalist exploits the labor of the worker because they make a profit. If they make a profit, they may they must be getting more in their sales than the value that the worker put into it with his labor. So you're stealing some of his surplus labor. It's this kind of confused Marxian crap, which is behind the – I think it underlies the whole IP mentality, which is why I always tell libertarians, you guys are basically sounding like Marxists. You know? um, and I think it came actually from Locke, and Locke had something – parallel called the labor theory of property, which is this idea that God gave us our bodies. We own ourselves. He gave us the world in commons, which means we're free to go out and homestead things in it or appropriate them by by mixing our labor with them. And because you own yourself, you own your labor. And because you own your labor, you own an unowned thing that you mix your labor with, right? Because it's like wrapping a coil of ownership around something that's unowned. So now it's inextricably linked with it. That's the kind of Lockean argument. And I think it's actually correct, except you don't need to say you own your labor to make that argument. That's the unnecessary step he put in there, probably to argue against the, the filmer, the, the, the monarchist guy. That mistake has permeated all of Western political thought. And I think it kind of led to the Marxian labor theory of value. Is this kind of focus? I, if there's one thing I could do, is I'd abolish the word labor from all economics because it just leads to massive confusion. Basically, labor is one subset of action, right? Action is leisure and labor. Things you do for its own sake and things you do to get things that you enjoy, le- leisure and labor. 
But actions are just things that you do with your body. And if you put it in terms of action, it would be awkward to say you own your action. What does that even mean? You own your body, and that gives you the right to act, but you don't own actions. And likewise, you don't own labor, but it's harder to realize that because we think of labor as something you sell, like if you're an employee. And so you think, well, if you sell it, you must own it, which is another fallacy. And you can ask whatever you want, but if you want to go deeper into the kind of – I can give you a summary argument of the principled case really against IP without these kind of um, example-type things, Corinna. Uh, so let, let me let me let me try one little example and give give you a, a kind of a uh, the best way I think of to explain the fundamental problem with IP, other than the fact that it is da- is damaging to human prosperity. And by the way, the fourteen year term. Do you know why that was a, a arrived at originally? Why? Because a, apprentices had seven year terms, and the idea was well, we should protect a master of an apprentice for about two apprentice terms, so that. He's protected from competition from his apprentices when they go out into the world. It was totally arbitrary. It was based upon how long the apprentice term was. It's not some natural number. You guys are probably familiar with the phenomenon of uh, restrictive covenants, like in in a neighborhood association, right? So you live in a neighborhood. You own your house, but there's a contract between all the owners where they all agree not to use their property for certain purposes, right? Like you can only use it for residential Purposes. You can't. You can't have a pig farm here. You can't have a, a Coca-Cola factory on your. You know, on your in your on your property, right? So that's in the law. That's called a negative easement or a negative servitude in the civil law, and it's perfectly legitimate because it's they're usually consensual. That is, the owner grants that to everyone else. So you can think of it like everyone in a, in a neighborhood is the primary owner of their home, but everyone's a co-owner of everyone's homes. But they're a co-owner in a certain way specified by the contract, and that is I have the right to sell my house and to live in it and to use it and to paint it whatever color I want and all that. But all my neighbors have a a negative veto right. They can prevent me from using it in a certain way, right? So it's a distribution of rights, and these are legitimate because they're they're consented to by the owners, and they run with the property so that if I sell my house – to a new buyer, he takes it subject to that restriction, that negative easement. Okay, So the negative easement is said to affect my estate, which is called a burden to stay because it's burdened by that easement. And the burden is in favor of the person who owns the easement, which is usually my neighbor, but it could be a person. But that's a, that's a detail that doesn't matter. And typically it's the person who happens to own the, my neighboring tract or one of my neighbor's tracts. Now, if I own a factory and I, and I see someone make a new – popular product for consumers like a car or a mousetrap or a computer or an iPad or an iPhone with a touchscreen and rounded corners, I might want to compete with him and make a similar product to get in on this action, right, and to please the consumers. So I start building these objects in my factory using my own material that I own uh, in the walls of my own factory using my own equipment with my own labor, and the person who holds a patent can get a court order to an injunction to stop me from using my property in that way. Now that is exactly that is a negative easement. So I can't use my property in a certain way without his permission. Now, in the law, the only time someone's justified in preventing me from using my property in a way I see fit when we don't have a, a restrictive covenant between us or a negative easement that we've agreed to is if I'm using my property in a way that violates the borders of their property. Like if I'm polluting and I, it goes onto their property, that's called a nuisance or making very loud noise, 
or if I'm taking my gun and I'm shooting it up in the air and the bullet's falling onto your land, you know, something like that. So I'm actually invading your property. So you can stop me from doing that, but you're not – it's not a limitation on my property rights when you do that. It's just a limitation on my actions. I can't do any action that will invade your property. That's what property rights are all about. So really property rights are a restriction on others' actions. So that means that we're free to do anything we want except for invade other people's property or use their property without their consent. Right. So what IP does is it grants this negative easement to my to other people in the world, even though I didn't sign I didn't consent to it. So it's a taking of a one of the sticks of my bundle of sticks and giving it to someone else. So basically patent is a redistribution of rights. It's a taking of property rights. And that's why it's wrong. It's theft. And copyright's exactly the same. If I have a printing press and I want to print um, a book given a pattern that's publicly known. Then I'm prevented from doing that by the actions of copyright law. Again, it's another negative easement or negative servitude granted by the government to someone else without my consent. So Rothbard would tr characterize this as, as triangular intervention, like the states see and the states telling A, taking something from A and giving it to B. Autarkic intervention is when the state just taxes you and takes it, and then when they give it out to someone else, they're redistributing it. So there's different types of ways of analyzing the intervention. But that's the primary case against patent and copyright. That it's a, it, and the only argument against it is that no, when I restrict you from using your property as you see fit, it's just like if I prevent you from swinging your fist to hit my nose. Okay, but that's a question begging argument because it presupposes that when I copy this book, I'm violating your property rights. That is in your copy. But that's, that begs the question of whether you do have a property. Like we all agree you have a property right in your land and in your house and in your body and in your printing press and in your ink. We all agree on that. But obviously I'm not invading the borders of those things. I'm not committing trespass. I'm not, I'm not performing a nuisance. So your, your only argument is that, well, you're violating my copyright. Yeah, but you can't prove that you have a copyright by assuming that there is one. You can't, you can't say, well, you're stealing my – yeah, go ahead, Nina. Sorry. Oh, no, no, I, I, I didn't want to interrupt. I just, like, the way I say this is that culture is not property. It just isn't. Like, ink and printing presses and houses, those are property. They have all the properties of property. Culture has none of those properties. It has no limits. Well, and just like the word value can be misleading and confusing, I actually, for the word property is also potentially problematic because... People say what you just said or they'll say, well, Kinsella, are you saying ideas aren't property? Or they'll say, well, what's property? To my mind, the word property in a technical sense should be restricted to the relationship between a human actor and, an, and, a, and a scarce resource. So then you would say I'm the owner of that resource or I have a property right in that resource. I think what happened over time is that humans need to employ scarce means uh, other than their bodies to achieve things in the world like tools. And external objects, and so they uh, they homestead them from the state of nature. Even if there's no other people around, you have to use things, um, and those things become an extension of yourself. They let you accomplish more things. So you call it a property of yourself. You follow me? It's like it helps define who you are. If you wear clothes, that's part of your identity almost. Um, and so I think the word property, if we just use another word like characteristic, like it's a feature or it's a characteristic of you, it would be harder to say. Ideas aren't characteristic, you know, but the, because we've slipped into using property as a synonym for the resource that you have a property right in, 
people get confused because they think you're saying – they think you have to have a whole theory about what's property and what's not property, whereas the real theory is the purpose of property rights is to allocate the right to control contestable resources in the world so that we can use them peacefully and cooperatively instead of fighting over them for the types of things over which there could be fights and disputes, contestable things, which is called scarce or rivalrous resources. Rivalrous, right? right? Rivalrous. Yeah, so so like property, for me, like a bare minimum for something to be property is that it be rivalrous. Correct. I agree and completely. Yeah, it's the culture's the opposite of that. It's not just non-rivalrous, it's anti-rivalrous. So when you argue this way, people say, well, you're anti-intellect because you don't value it. But of course we value many things in the world and in life that we don't think are subject to property rights. We value love and we value peacefulness and you know a nice sunset, lots of things. If you – getting back to Mises, he breaks human action down into a very simple framework. He calls it praxeology, the logic of action. But he basically says, listen, every time you act, you're trying to achieve some end goal. And you have to use some kind of scarce or rivalrous means to do it. But your action is always guided by knowledge. Okay, So there's two fundamental components to successful action. You have to have the availability of some resource to use, a tool, a means, and you have to have knowledge that tells you what to do. The first thing is subject to conflict and rivalry. So we need property rights so we can use them peacefully. And cooperatively. But ideas and knowledge are like the plasma of the culture that we're born into, and we all benefit from having inherited all these ideas built up over the generations, and everyone contributes to them all the time. And those are like a free commons because they are infinitely copyable, and everyone can use and employ them. So a million people at once can watch the same movie or can use the same recipe to make a cake or to build or to make a metal alloy, but they don't conflict with each other. So you don't need property rights. Property rights make no sense. In the realm of non-scarce things. You commie. I am a commie. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm starting to get it a little bit. Let me test my knowledge a little bit. Part of the way that our market is shaped right now is on the basis of the existence of copyright. A lot of the way things are, are sold or manufactured are on the assumption that somebody has a protected ability to control the right to produce copies of that design, whether it be a manuscript or whether it be a patent. Correct. But if there were no government protections for patents or works of entertainment or maps, right, then the people who produce those would have to develop new forms of markets that would keep those designs controlled or hidden for as long as possible. Maybe. Yes. Until they were able to um, afford or justify the release of those things. Yes. Um, and here, here's the way to think about it. Um, that's more the case in patents. So in, in, in the pre-patent world, people – companies would rely upon trade secrets. That is they would just keep their, their proprietary stuff secret as, as much as they could, and that could last for decades or hundreds of years. Um, but the whole purpose of the patent system was to – persuade people to disclose publicly their ideas. The patent bargain, they call it, which is in the statutory law, is not really to incentivize innovation. It's to incentivize publication or disclosure. So the bargain is if you disclose in a published written patent application document, if you disclose to the world your secret idea, then we will give you a monopoly on it. So that's really the bargain. It does do that in some cases, but really not as much as people think because 
probably a good 90% of all innovation that you want to profit off of by incorporating that into a product, you wouldn't be able to keep as a trade secret anyway because the, the design is apparent in the product itself. And in fact, you would usually advertise based upon the features of your new mouse. My new improved mousetrap has a, a Teflon coating that makes it better. You're going to put that on the advertising, so you're going to reveal it. So the patent lets you reveal something publicly that you would have revealed anyway and get a patent on it. So it, you, the public doesn't get anything extra. They would have known about the, this invention anyway. You could say that both uh, laws distort culture and innovation. And if you remove those laws, then the distortion will go away, which means things will change. You can't say that no one will suffer by getting rid of these laws because if no one suffered, there'd be no lobby for it. There are three big industries that benefit from it. That is the pharmaceutical industry for patents and Hollywood and the music industry for copyright, and that's in America. I, be, I think the whole world is shackled by these horrible laws basically for the benefit of those three American industries, not for the artists, not for other countries. They just do it because we have – imperialism and we, we force them to do what we want them to do. I think overall everyone would be better off. But like in the in the case of uh, a copyright, you probably have more sequels being made of movies now because of copyright. Because comp movie less less creativity because you're not facing competition so you just return the same franchise over and over again. Maybe there'd be less sequels. In the field of patents, you might have more research being done for practical gizmos now because you can get a patent on that. But you can't get a patent on laws of nature and abstract things like laws of physics or mathematical algorithms. So there's there's relatively less research done in those fields because of this distorting or skewing effect, which economists widely admit. Oh, and, and one more thing. Pharmaceuticals, they claim that that's the strongest case for patents because you, you spend a billion dollars developing a drug, and then you could be knocked off as soon as you – Start selling it because if you're selling this little chemical pill for a thousand dollars, someone could just make a similar one for five dollars, right? It's not fair. It's not fair. But part of the reason it's not fair is because the FDA process, which is another government intervention in the market, is so expensive and takes so long, and it forces the companies who apply to reveal their secrets during the process. So by the time their patent is um, their 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 FDA approval is granted, everyone knows exactly what they're going to make, and they've had time to gear up and be ready to compete with them as a generic. So all they're waiting for now is for the patent to expire, and sometimes the FDA process takes so long that you have almost no patent term left by the time the drug is granted. So then there's a special thing in the law that it lets you extend your patent if the FDA delayed you for too long, and then the FDA can prevent generics from making the same drug even if your patent has expired, sort of to grant a quasi-patent-like monopoly. So the point is if you got rid of the FDA, pharmaceutical companies would face much lower costs, and they would be able to keep their ideas secret for longer, and they wouldn't face as much immediate easy competition when they finally came up with a, a new drug. So the, they, their argument that they need patents wouldn't be there. So right now the, the government imposes costs with the FDA, and then the government imposes more costs with the patent system to make up for the costs they imposed with the FDA. We could get rid of them both and make everyone better off except for the people who work for these agencies and the, and the few special interests that, uh, that are, are rent seekers who profit off of – at the expense of everyone else. I feel anxious at the prospect of unregulated drugs. They would be regulated. They just wouldn't be regulated by the government. I guarantee that. <laughs> 
No, if you sell if if you sell something, you're going to want to get a seal of approval so people will be be uh, comfortable getting it. And if they want to take the risk that it's un, that it's unregulated, you know, it's like putting drugs in your body. People have the right to do what they want with their own bodies. That's the libertarian argument. And by the way, the case against patent and copyright doesn't depend upon a libertarian um, framework. I think it helps. I mean, I'm an anarchist too, so even, if you're an anarchist, there's even more arguments, right? Like. You have to have legislation to have patent and copyright, and we're against legislation. But you don't have to be an anarchist or against legislation or even a libertarian. In fact, most people's arguments for patent and copyright are just utilitarian. And if you, even if you just have that argument, you can de debunk that by just showing that they've never met their burden of proof. In 200 years, they've never come up with any conclusive study or report showing that patents and copyrights benefit society more than they cost. In fact, most of the studies that are not inconclusive – conclude the other way. They conclude that it looks like the patent system impedes innovation overall and makes us poorer, and we should get rid of it or greatly liberalize the system. And there's historical evidence for the absence of copyright uh, in Germany, right? I don't remember the, the years in Germany that Germany didn't really have strong copyright, but there was this explosion of books. Correct. Explosion of creativity. And there's similar examples. It's in there's My book was against intellectual property, but Boldrin and Levine, these two Non-libertarian Chicago-type economists, they wrote a book uh, studying patents uh, and copyright called Against Intellectual Monopoly. Uh, they went into it trying to explain you know, how we should tweak the system, what's good about it, what's bad about it, but they concluded that they should both be abolished. So they're on our side now. But in chapter 9, I think, of their book, which is online at againstmonopoly.org, um, they go into the pharmaceutical industry, and they explain that there was a good 50, 60, 70-year period in the late – like in the 19th century and in the 20th century uh, where Switzerland and Italy didn't have a patent system that covered pharmaceuticals. And they were among the world leaders. They still are uh, pharmaceuticals, um, even though they didn't have patents at all. I'm starting to realize that some of my support for copyright and for patents is due to the familiarity I have with how the system currently works. This kind of touches on what you were saying before about it being a sort of a religion. I have unexamined assumptions or beliefs that because the market works the way that it does now, that it, that's the best way for it to work. Thinking about what you're saying, I think the market would work really differently if there were no intellectual property right protections. I think it would. I think you would have more creative lawyering, lawyering and business deals that relied more upon reputation and contracts you got to realize too how many ways the state sets up roadblocks to private alternatives to existing systems. So, for example, you know, one way to fight piracy in a copyright-free world might be for movie theaters to get together and have something like a cartel, so they're all they all agree not to not to copy each other's stuff. But that was busted by the government as an antitrust violation, right? So you have natural things people could resort to that are ways to deal with the way the world would work absent copyright and patent law which are which are quasi illegal because of state intervention i'm trying to imagine if i were sony and i made my money on selling my movies i would want to control all the theaters beyond that i would also want to control all of the devices that can be used to play my content at home which I guess Sony kind of does, right? They're one of the innovators behind Blu-ray. But then I think that I would also want some sort of 
system that if you were going to get a copy or attain a copy or, or a right to play any of my content, that I would need your personal agreement that you would not distribute or, or make any copies of it and, and make that a contract. Correct. The contract is you can, you can watch this if you don't copy it. And, and that every time that you wanted to pull the disc off your shelf and pop it in, you would have to agree to that again or, 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 or something like that. And then I would also probably try to embed watermarks into that content to make sure that if it did get copied, that I could hold you personally responsible for allowing that content to make it out into the wild. Right. And I think that could work to an extent with voluntary shunning because if someone's doing that, it's obvious uh, that they're kind of a scofflaw or they're not respecting the, the, the creator's wishes. Lots of people mistakenly believe that you can build a copyright system based upon a contract system. That's that's actually incorrect because copyright is what's called an in-rem right. It's a property right, which means it's a right good against the world. So if you own a car or a home, no one can use that property without your permission, even though you don't have an agreement with them. Right? That's a that's a property right or an in-rem right. Contracts are laws between the parties only. It's called in personam, and simply legally impossible to build an in-rem system from a, a contract system. Now, you could have a, a co contract regime that's widely respected that has some features of copyright. The problem with that, I believe, as a business matter, is that I just don't think they're practical because suppose there's no copyright and Amazon – some author self-publishes a book or a publisher sends a book to Amazon and they want to sell it on Kindles and on uh, print-on-demand through CreateSpace – and they're worried about being knocked off, so they insist that Amazon make every customer sign this contract before buying the book, right, or a movie, something like that. So I buy a book for $10. I'm paying them money for their book when I don't have to because I can go pirate it, right? So there's millions of people pirating it. I'm one of the few people who's going to pay them $10 for their service of the convenient delivery of their book, right? And now they're going to make me sign a contract, which is a little bit risky, so it's, it's adding another cost onto me. The contract can say one of two things. It can say, if you copy this and we catch you, you owe us some money, some damages, right? Now, either it's $10 or it's a million dollars. Now, no one's going to sign a contract saying, I'm, I got to pay you a million dollars because fuck it. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay you 10 bucks and then put my whole livelihood on the line if you someday accuse me of learning from the book I bought from you and reusing it in the way you don't like. No one would do that. You're, you're imposing too high of a cost on your customer. This is my prediction, my opinion. I don't know if I'm right. If someone wants to do it and then get away with it, that's fine. But I don't think you can get away with it. So you'd have to have a nominal penalty. Like you've got to refund the price of the – I mean you've got to pay twice the price of the book or something, $10, $20, $100, but nothing crazy because no one's going to sign something crazy. So if it's a small fee, you're going to get someone who's going to just do it. They're going to pay the fee, and they're going to publish it online. Like, fine, I'm going to release this book into the internet, and I'm going to pay the $100 fine, and now it's too late. I just don't think it can work. And in fact, if you look at what happens in reality, like I'm a member of some private sites. Like Tom Woods, he's a libertarian writer. He has some kind of programs. You pay a little fee, and you get access to a paywall system, and you can download the videos and all that. I could be an asshole, and I could copy them and put them on the internet tomorrow. It wouldn't really hurt him because people buy – the convenience of going to the site and having it on available streaming. No one wants to put everything in the world on a peta drive anymore, right, or a thumb drive. You want access to it. Um, but I would be an asshole, and I'm a friend of his. And everyone in the community would be like, why are you doing this? Why do you want to hurt the business model of the guy that you are trying to promote and help by 
being part of the community. It's just not a problem. It never happens. I have never seen it happen. Now, as things get larger and more impersonal and there's you know some mega corporation that has 10, 10 million customers, yeah, there's no loyalty left in, there anymore. It's not a high trust society. You know, It's not Norway. It's America. Um, so some business models would be harder and harder to, to do. But I think the contract model can only go so far. The biggest use of contract would probably be with non-disclosure agreements between your people that are helping you or with your employees like keeping your trade secrets. Are you persuaded yet, Corinna? I'm thinking so if, if I were Apple, I would start making my devices to make it as difficult as possible to repair them. Well, actually, Apple already does that. I'd make it even harder, right? I would try to make sure that no device went out without all of those chips being booby-trapped so that if you try to open up the device, smoke comes out so that you can't copy the device. But that's like that's almost like imposing a cost on on your customers, sort of like the contract. Because if if a if a competitor just makes a knockoff and they say, "Hey, we're just like the iPhone, but ours are easy to tinker with, and they're cheaper on top of it," lots of Apple customers will say, "Screw it, I'm going to buy their, I'm going to buy that." So Apple is limited by market pressure from being too much of a jerk about it. I think. They are, but if, if they had something that they wanted to protect, they would go to extra means to protect it. And it wouldn't affect most customers. Correct. It wouldn't affect most consumers. The, the intent is to foil the competitor, not the consumer. But right now, companies can rely upon copyright. So, for example, if you, I think there's a, some cases like John, some of the tractor manufacturers, and this is coming with cars, because they have mm-hmm. so much software built into them. They're tr- they don't want you to repair your things on your own. You, they, you want you to go to their licensed dealership and have to – they can collect the rent that way. They're enforcing copyright. They're saying you're a copyright infringer if you, if you hack your own device and are able to repair it yourself or have someone you hire to repair it. Like if I pay someone to fix my, my John Deere tractor, it's actually a criminal copyright infringement violation. They don't have to rely upon clever tricks to make it harder – they just rely upon criminal penalties from the state because of copyright. That's what they do now. Yes. But if they, if they didn't have that to fall back on, they would come up with other tricks. Probably, yes. But they probably wouldn't booby trap the tractors so that they'd explode because it would be hard for them to sell Correct. tractors. No, they probably wouldn't go that far. And also standardization would be more of a thing because right now you have all these proprietary cables and dongles. Apple has lightning cable and all these things, and it's a nightmare, and it's inefficient economically, right? Uh, sometimes specialization makes sense if it naturally arises on the market, you know. Um, but generally, we want our trains to have the same width railways, right, which traces back to the Roman times, the length of a chariot or whatever. Um, and we want our roads to have similar standards. And um, it'd be nice if our if our phones are on the same network and can talk to each other, and and the, all internet websites have the same protocol so that they can communicate with each other and that they're they're intercompatible. Sounding like a commie again. Yeah, I know. I got accused of that by – I debated a patent lawyer, and that was another horrible debate because he didn't make an argument. It was a federal society thing up in Ohio, and uh, when I said something like you'd have more standardization, he accused me of wanting the law to force people to standardize, which is – you know, he missed the point entirely. We have, we have artificial – artificially imposed specialization and lack of compatibility because of the patent system. A good example of that is, is printers. HP and Canon and Epson, they all make these printers, which are reasonably priced, but the ink is insane, right? 
that's where they make their money off of selling the ink. And so they don't want you to be able to get a generic cartridge, so they can't stop people from making generic cartridges. So what they do is they they try to protect it with a patent. So what they'll do is they'll just come up with some little slightly innovative circuit that doesn't really – it's not necessary, but it's got an innovative feature. So they get a patent on it, and they'll split the circuit in half. Half is on the cartridge and half is on the printer so that you have to mate them together for it to work. So anyone making a generic cartridge has to put this useless half circuit on there so that when they make it, they're selling a patented object. So they're, they're so they can stop it that way. Yeah, copyright has definitely hobbled technology for filmmakers. I mean, the whole authoring DVDs was a freaking nightmare because of the standards that the film industry set to make it really difficult to copy DVDs and therefore difficult to author them. And then uh, digital cinema package, it's the digital projection format. That's a real disaster. And it's just, they're just made extra, extra stupid and inefficient and, and flawed and delicate because of the industry try, you know, fighting this battle that they're never going to win. I mean, it might take a year or two, but people will find ways around it. Yeah, and if you remember, I think it was in the 80s when, when VHS tapes were becoming popular, and there was a, a famous Supreme Court case. It's the Sony Betamax case, I think. And uh, and it was a five-to-four decision that that said consumers have the right to make – to tape – to record television signals on their on their home VHS recorders. Uh, and if the court had just gone one, one vote the other direction, it would have – it would have hobbled the entire way that – that industry grew, you know, to blockbuster video stores, people renting movies, which actually helped the movie industry, right? It gave them a second set of revenues. Um, didn't hurt them that people were recording, you know, laugh in or, or Golden Girls on their TV at home. Didn't help them. Didn't hurt them at all. It made people, more people buy VHS recorders that they could use to play movies. Um, but and then that led to DVDs, and then recordable DVDs, and then. Blu-ray, and now streaming. I do want to talk about how copyright has fostered permission culture. And I think uh, decades of lobbying of the copyright industry is one of the reasons that we're in the culture wars that we're in now, that an entire generation has been indoctrinated by these curricula that the copyright lobbies got into schools teach them that they need permission for absolutely everything and has made them authoritarian. Yeah. Yeah. I try, you know, I try to, I try to, I used to try to gather examples. I have an old, old blog post called the, the patent copyright and trademark horror files, but I just, I, I gave up because there were so many of I'd see two or three a day. Um, and there are so many ways it permeates society, but yeah, I think I agree with you. Permission culture is horrible and people don't understand IP law because it's very, ambiguous and arcane and changes all the time and it's you don't most people don't have the expertise to know it so they have this vague idea that you can't take someone's photograph without their permission because there's a right of publicity maybe there is sometimes even i don't understand that law i mean everyone they blur people's pictures and documentaries they're afraid to take a photograph of a building because there's a statue in front of it that might have a copyright on it there is even some crazy cases where you can have a, a, a copyright in a photograph and so that means that someone can't make a copy of it, and they couldn't make a derivative work either, which means like using it uh, in a film or something like that. But there have been cases where someone goes to the same location 
years later and takes a photograph of the same vista, maybe using a similar camera, maybe not. And so they take a photograph, a new photograph of a, of, of a fact in the world, you know, the way it looks to the, to the lens, and they're sued for copyright infringement for copying the original photograph, even though they're not copying it at all. They're just you know, you took a picture of the Grand Canyon, and now I took a picture of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's crazy. On, on the other hand, movie producers and f uh, photographers, they'll often set up an automatic setup. Like they'll use a drone or they'll have a security camera somewhere that takes pictures at a random basis. You know, or I might have a, a tripod set up and I walk away and let it film for 10 minutes. Is there no author then? You know, are parts of The Godfather not copyright protected because he wasn't standing there touching it? I, you know, it's all this weird metaphysical stuff that makes no sense. It makes no sense because copyright law is not objective. It doesn't arise from common law and from actual disputes. It's just a, it's just the spinning out of the words written down on paper by a bunch of bureaucrats two hundred years ago. It's like a religion. Yes. Well, now I'm having a crisis of faith. <laughs> Because I've always believed that copyright was what protected creators. Protected them from what? So this is the sort of scenario that I worry about. And as I'm processing this, I'm realizing that I, I, I have to rethink it. So don't try, to, don't try to convince me otherwise. I'm already trying to convince myself. But I'm thinking of a case like where you have these websites where people write uh, short stories. And they do it for their own pleasure. And somebody comes along and scrapes up all these stories and publishes them as a different volume, sometime without giving any credit to the original creators, but in a way that, that nevertheless they're making a profit. So they might even just scoop up a, a bunch of these stories and bundle them together and sell it for $2.99 on Amazon. Well, the creators didn't consent to that. And at minimum, I would think that they should have a remedy to stop those sales, if not recover some of the money that was made from them. But I, I'm not sure how that happens if there's no copyright. And scenarios like that are things that, that you know, I, I would want those creators to be able to have some sort of remedy. And I'm not sure how they get that without copyright. They can't. What happens if somebody publishes this podcast and makes money on it? How would you feel about that? I guess it depends on how much money. If if somebody took this this episode and started making a million dollars on it, I'd feel pretty aggrieved. That's funny because I'd be like, oh my god, like they found an audience for our podcast that nobody listens to. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, like they're monetizing it, and we can't even figure out how to get listeners. So I'm down with that. Plus, since it's our podcast, we're then positioned correct to use the the fame that they got us and uh, be smart about exploiting that moving forward. Well, or their technique. So, the, I mean, the, these scenarios are so unrealistic. I mean, for, so Corinna, who would take that and publish it without giving credit? I mean, how would that even, I, I can't imagine that would ever work. Well, I think it's happening right now, actually. Like like what? What's an example? I, I think that there are people who pick up all of these fan stories, remove the attribution and publish them on Amazon. I think that's actually happening. Well, then certainly there would be a record of the original publication because it's online, and someone could easily show that you're you're. Def I mean, I wouldn't buy a book from someone who put their name on something someone else wrote because I I wouldn't trust what other changes they might have made. Right? I think the big danger is you just put their name on it. But if it's so easy to just take these little snippets and do a book out of it and make a lot of money, 
in most cases, the author is going to do that themselves. I mean, if I've got a bunch of little things that I can easily put together and sell as a two ninety nine book on Amazon and make some money, why wouldn't I do it? And if they do it, and I say, oh, now I'm going to do that with my next series of stories. You know, it, it wouldn't last that long. People always tell me, hey, Kinsella, how would you feel if I took your against IP, IP book and slapped my name on it and make a million dollars? I'm like, I mean, I guess I'd feel surprised. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? You can't make money on a on a libertarian nonfiction intellectual property theory book. It just it doesn't sell that well, buddy. <laughs> Plus, my copy's free online. Why are they going to pay you for it? <laughs> we should all do that. You know what? You should all release Sita Sings the Blues under your names, and I'll release your stuff. I'll release Against Intellectual Property under my name. <laughs> Except that I I don't want to do that because that's that's stupid and makes me look terrible and it's like beyond the fact that it's immoral it's just dumb it would be a terrible move on my part i've got a blog post called calling smart asses bluffs and some guy did that to me he said how would you feel if i so what i did was i took my it was either a book or a long article and i i actually did a search and replace i put his name in it and i published it on my own site i said there it's published under your name now what now what do you want to do (laughs) I guess I don't mind. <laughs> anyway, we should be so lucky that someone pirates this show. Someone please pirate this show. Steal this podcast. I'm not even I'm not even sure who owns the copyright in this work. Uh we're all speaking is being recorded. It's not even clear. We don't have a written agreement. So I assume we each own an undivided interest in the entire copyright to it. So each of us could grant consent to plus it's gonna be up online for free. Um, Let's sue each other and find out. Yeah. I was just going to assert that I own the copyright because I'm arguing or discussing with two people who would never claim such a thing because it would violate their principles. Well, if copyright had a, had a hypocrisy clause, I would like that because that would at least be one way to get rid of copyright protection in myself. But right now, Nina and I can't help but have copyright in everything that we write. Because it's automatic and there's it's inalienable. There's no way to get rid of it. Like the CC zero thing, I like, but I think I'm afraid that's not legally effective. I'm I'm not even sure regular CC licenses are effective because there's no consideration. You're just granting it, and there's no record of it. I mean, what if you publish something online and you say oh, this is CCBY, and then a year later you change your mind and you take it off, and then you sue someone for copying it? Their defense would be, no, I'm have a license, and they'll say, where is it? Because in the old days, you would have a, you'd sign an agreement and people have a copy of the of the agreement. They could prove it. How do you prove that there's a, a CC license in something? Blockchain somehow. Blockchain. Yeah, I know. I know that. That's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's another another Bitcoin uh, wet dream. I, I mean, I I enjoy Stefan's arguments because they're very different from mine. Like they come from a different angle, and yet ultimately they come down to the same thing. I don't disagree with yours. I think yours focus more on the on the consequences and the way it plays out, which I agree with you. And I even agree with your kind of artistic, loosey goosey, new agey like let information be. I know it's not yours exactly. Let information be free and cultural expression. I'm just not an artist, but I, I appreciate all that. And I agree with it all. I think it's it's a it's a interwoven fabric of. Um, Look, it's it's unjust and it's unnatural. So you're going to see that manifested in different ways in the way you argue for it, the way those arguments have to be incoherent or dishonest or or inconsistent, uh, and in the consequences, right? Which there's many consequences of it. And you focus on some of those that you've experienced yourself. 
Yeah, and I, I do think Corinna comes from a place of thinking about the artist, like what's best for the artist. And as an artist, I believe that copyright is extremely harmful to artists, like probably more harmful to artists than anybody else because it puts such a restriction on the work that we can make. Well, think about why Prince for years had the word slave carved into the beard on his cheek. Remember that? Because he was protesting the utter control his label had over him, which he wanted to get out of, but he couldn't because he had signed these agreements, which were part of copyright laws. I mean, the whole system was built up on copyright. The whole publisher, author, writer, artist system is a legacy of the original system of state monopolization, uh, state monopoly grant to the, to the stationer's company, followed by the statute of Anne and the copyright system, which led the has kept these gatekeepers in power up until basically 10 years ago, right, with with self-publishing, self-printing, technology, the internet, all this stuff. The other thing to keep in mind is copyright is basically unenforceable now because of piracy and encryption and the internet. Um, and I believe patents will soon be suffer that fate to some degree if and when 3D printing becomes more um, – more viable, right? When you can print your own car or iPhone without permission because you can get the file sent to you by encryption secretly over the internet and you can plug that file into your 3D printer in your neighborhood basement, you know, whoever has one, you can circumvent patent law too. So technology is allowing us to circumvent these laws. Unlike in lots because they're because they're ideas, right? Because they're idea related. And technology is really helping have a former revolution with communication and transmission of ideas. It's not so useful for the drug war, but it's useful for these types of laws. Uh, but with the laws, what that means is an increase in surveillance, like, like what happened with copy shops and even cake shops, right? Correct. Like a cake. So um, that is also one of the consequences of copyright is the boost of the surveillance state and the harder it becomes to enforce it because of piracy then the what they do is they make the penalties worse so it falls rarely on people but the people it falls on it falls on very disproportionately i did want to briefly mention the difference between laws and norms so one of the reasons that people do publish those you know they scrape and republish stories like you're talking about corinna i can believe that they remove the names cuz a lot of people think that they're safer if they remove the names. It's really dumb. But it's because of the anxiety that they have about it's it's sort of because of the copyright regime that copyright has been so conflated with plagiarism and and these people are they like they don't understand it but they're very anxious about it. So they think like, "Oh, if I have this person's name on it, you know, the person can do a search on their name and find it and they'll get bad at me or I'll get in trouble. So if I just hide their name then uh, you know, I'll get away with this a little bit longer. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, and I think probably plagiarism might be encouraged by copyright because people are afraid to have long block quotes because they're afraid they might be copyright infringement. So they feel like they have to rewrite it in their own words, and then they might be afraid to drop a citation because they don't want to admit it because they're afraid that maybe a copyright thing there. So um, it could lead to the opposite behavior that it's allegedly trying to stop. Just like defamation law, by the way, defamation law is meant to stop libel and slander. What happens is that if you libel or slander someone and they don't sue you for it, you can say, well, it must be – people think it must be true. Otherwise, they'd be sued for it. 
right? So it gives credibility to slander and calumny because people think if you're not sued for it, it must be true. Whereas in a world where defamation was legal, people wouldn't believe things that were said about someone just because there was no suit because there couldn't be a suit. So they would they would have a more skeptical mind. They wouldn't be as credulous about crazy things said about someone. They would say, well, maybe the guy's lying because it's free to lie about people. Right. That was an issue with uh, conflating copyrights or licenses with endorsements, that people assume that every time they see a copy of a work that the creator endorsed that use. And uh, with Sita Sings the Blues, I, I tried to make it really clear that, like, no, anybody can reuse this, including people I disagree with mightily. And if you see a copy of this, that implies no endorsement at all. And that's how it should be. That making a copy of something has nothing to do with anybody's endorsement, particularly the artists. Right. And someone has said my Harry Potter example, like if, what if some movie studio produces a movie and they just lie and they say that J.K. Rowling has endorsed it? Well, she's just got to go on her website and say this is a lie, and they're gonna they're gonna have you know egg on their face. Well, I mean, except in the case of people lying about J.K. Rowling, it doesn't matter how much she tells the truth; people just keep lying about her. Oh, good point. Nice tie-in. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Stefan. Thank you, guys. I, I would thank you also, but since I'm now working through a crisis of faith, I. I'm going to have to wait to see how I come out on the other side of it. <laughs> okay. But I, I really appreciate you helping to enlighten me. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>